Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution NHS, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by creating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I am Ellie from Evolution Recruitment Solutions and today I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. First we'll go around and introduce ourselves. Ralph, would you like to start off please? Uh, so um, my name's Ralph Elias. I work at London Northwest University Healthcare. So it's one of the London acute trusts located in northwest london and um my portfolio includes a sort of range of duties i guess in the last couple of years uh, it has been much to do with elective recovery and prior to that obviously the the sort of covid response but uh, i work very closely with a, a range of the programs that are going on within the organization particularly transformation, obviously sort of liaising between them and the operating divisions around how we're aligning our work to the operating plan, basically. Thank you, Ralph. So I'm Dan Race. I'm head of PMO at, uh, in the IT department at Geisner St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. Um, uh, so essentially providing and uh, ensuring that all capital projects, more and more revenue included in that book, predominantly capital uh, projects, um, following best practice um, around project delivery. So making sure that um, all of their project artifacts are up to, uh, up to code, that um, any changes are mandated properly and um, being approved through whatever governance boards they need to. Um, prior to that, I've been a program manager at Marsden. Uh, I was head of PMO at the Royal Brompton. And then before that, I spent 13 years at Foreign and Commonwealth Office um, doing various things, including technology strategy. So that's me in a nutshell. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Mohammed, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Mohammed Akram. I'm Associate Director of IMNT at Telestop and Portman NHS Trust, the Specialist Mental Health Trust in North Central London area uh, in London. Uh, my background in technology started with trying to get engaged uh, in NHS project when I was in the university and then I'm still with NHS. Um, I've led various projects uh, and programs, including the implementation of EPR system across the organization. I've also had uh, experience building and deploying data warehouses, implementing Power VI and analytical tools. Um, I've also actively been involved in uh, designing and uh, delivery of the transformation program for the organization. That includes technology, IT, cybersecurity. Uh, so I've basically uh, been um, privileged, I would say, to work in different areas uh, across the organization in different fields. Uh, so I've been working in NHS over 14, 15 years now. Uh, that's kind of me. Uh, a brief background to what I've been doing in the NHS. Okay, so Raoul, your question was, um, are we setting realistic goals and expectations for digital engagement? Um, so if you could just give us a bit of context 
context as to what you mean by that, and then we will go around to the panel. Thanks. So, where this question really came from is that much of my time is spent working across the various programs that exist within the organization. I mean, in previous lives, I've, I've dealt with, as I mentioned, recovery, but I've also dealt with turnaround, with merger. And one of the challenges that I can see becoming greater is that almost all the improvement work and certainly all the major changes that we want to see happening within organizations are very much hinging on digital, certainly being a key enabler, if not the key enabler. And yet we're, we're sort of quite unclear sometimes about whether the, the expectations we set in particular of, of these transitions are are really realistic, certainly in terms of the pace of change. So I encounter very often instances of programs of work that are sort of predicated on a, on a pace of people being able to adopt new techniques that far outstrips even our own knowledge of how long these things can take to be adopted. Um, we seem to make very regularly assumptions about people's capabilities and experience. And that can really sort of undermine really what are obviously the, what is obviously the right direction of travel. So I guess it's a challenge I deal with. I've moved sort of out of direct program management more into effectively trying to work behind the scenes to help the alignment. But I do notice that these sort of mismatch expectations are are a really significant risk and, and what is then also problematic is it it kind of undermines the almost the, the what is really very very clear set of benefits of, of many of these programs of work in the in the eyes of the staff you know quite wrongly really in that these things genuinely are essential now to, to sort of transform our organizations so that's kind of something that i'm constantly battling with I guess through through my colleagues uh, in their various programs to see are there ways in which we can do this better, basically. So I'm very, very interested always in hearing about other people's thoughts, what they've done, and so on. Uh, it's not to say it's all it's all problematic, but definitely it's very, very challenging, and I think it is underestimated. Certainly when you're sort of scoping these things out. I echo. Um what Ralph said, it's its absolutely, it, it really is challenging. Um, I was having exactly this kind of conversation with my um, my program director yesterday, actually, just around, so we, we just had a workshop this week um, as we're trying to upskill all of our SROs um, because we recognize that across the board, um, senior clinical staff typically are being asked to be um, senior responsible officers for technology programs without giving them any real guidance or support on what it means to be an SRO. Um, and it was telling just how many of them thought it was half a day a week that they needed to commit to deliver some really substantial um, technology transformation programs. So um, expectation management is is key. It really is. I think probably two things for me in expectation management is one is around um, expectation management or at board level and where these things are being signed off on just how long these programs or change are going to take. So the number of times I've seen a business case go through where they said they're going to put it in in six to nine months 
and without really looking at the fact that the people that are critical to delivering these things um, and are going to have to make substantial changes to their working practices, um, not to mention getting involved in the actual implementation of the new system itself, are all clinical people doing very busy clinical work anyway. We never give them the bandwidth to actually do it. We just seem to think that they can find an extra 20 hours a week on top of their already, I'm sure, pressed timelines. Um, so so there's expectation management in terms of if you think it's going to be six months, think two years, because that's probably more realistic. Um, but then the other side is around um, just the expectation management on those that are involved in it in the project itself and how much time they're going to have to commit to it. So not just the SROs recognizing that if they're not spending, I would say, at least a third of their time on, you know, on, on driving the program, they're probably not putting enough effort into it. And the same could be said of the entire project team and all the clinical leads and um, people that need to be engaged in either a monthly project board, but weekly project team meetings and you know the activities that inevitably fall out of that that you have to get involved in. So there's a massive expectation that I think and a communication piece that needs to happen probably across all NHS trusts, really, just to get across the message that if you really want to put in technology-driven transformational change, you're going to have to um, commit a substantial amount of clinical staff time, and that may very well have an impact on their ability to deliver clinical services in the short term. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Mohammed, over to you. Uh, thanks. I think it really valid points being raised uh, by both staff and uh, based. Uh, I think the challenges are um, we are also delivering business as usual activities along with the digital transformation programs and projects, uh, which are often a large scale, uh, lengthy program of change. Yet uh, we do not build enough capacity to deliver. And yet we are expected to achieve certain capabilities. Uh, those who are delivering it and those who are actually going to use the systems as well. So it's quite a lot of mismatch stroke expectations set and not met at times that that cause issue uh not that the individuals do not want the change it's just the right or not the right mix of environment which leads into delaying the projects you know increasing the costs and not achieving the benefits the organization set out to achieve so i think it's the right mix of skill set right mix of the key elements we need to establish uh, in the organization and across the NHS, if we are to achieve digital transformation, uh, you know, how often we come across, you know, why cannot we deliver this program? This is taking way longer than what it should have been. Well, it could be the expectations were not set correctly. Uh, the second is, you know, are we communicating the right message? Are we prioritizing the right things we need to deliver first? It needs to be all in sync from the management to the people who are delivering to the people who are receiving, the masses need to be consistent across all what we're trying to achieve. Because we've got limited resources, how do we align that limited resource to deliver? It was just something that Mohammed just said there that, that kind of touched a nerve because I, I get it all the time around um, projects are always, they're always delayed and they always cost more than you originally uh, anticipate. And you're right. Part of that, I think, is expectation management. We always think it's going to, we always say it's going to take six to nine months and it tends to take nearer two years. And it, so it takes longer and costs more. How much of that do you think um, 
is down to the fact that when the business cases themselves are being written, that that those that are writing the business cases feel compelled to make them as short and cheap in uh, so that they're more likely to get approved. Rather than if you wrote a business case that said this is going to take two years and cost a million pounds, and you could just as easily write the same one that says we're going to do it in nine months and it's going to cost you a million, it's going to cost half that, you know, um, and then get it approved and then worry about the fact it's actually going to take longer and cost more later. How much do you think is that is happening in the organisations, and how hard how hard do you think it is to change that? I suppose mentality of how we write business cases. I think um, you really. The nail on the head. Um, I think what is financial pressures we got agendas, people who, who want to push the technology and see the problems, and they they want to resolve the problems, uh, and they come come up with weird and wonderful ways to present things in in a way um, that they think uh, would deliver what they they are after, but they often then miss the the opportunity to take and consider what the business want to achieve. And the people who should be involved in the delivery of it, um, and offers the pressure on time as well. So, what it is that we need to present uh, that will, you know, get the assurance or the approval from the board or the program that you are able to proceed at this basis. I think, I think uh, there are often the cases we, we're struggling with, with with the time and the and the and the costs, and probably do not. I think that the key challenge I think around is you need enough time spent to create the viability of the program and the project that required both money and time i think which we're both uh, short on so it's is a draft business case which probably won't go into the detail or hasn't got the analysis to to back it up fully uh, that might be resulting in in impacting the project or impacting not having the right amount of funding for the project over to you else i'm sort of thinking about some of the things that that, that that Mohammed and, and, and Race and, and Daniel have, have said, and um, there, there's there's something for me around. Well, obviously, there's there's just the realities of the, the pressures of systems are under and so on. That to some extent we we you know may get better, may not. But, but there's an element for me of well, what are the things that we can do to make this uh, slightly less painful than it can be. I mean, it strikes me that. Some of this problem may get easier, as of course, I'm looking at our own hospital, which is about to go through a certain implementation. Yeah, obviously, the, the background level of technology that's sitting within the organization is progressively increasing. So, to some extent, the, the sort of preparedness of staff ought to be progressively increasing, the capability of the organization should be increasing. So, hopefully, future sort of waves of technology transformation should be building well they will be building on on a on a burma base so to some extent we'll benefit from that in the future and it does feel certainly where i am at the moment that that we are taking an absolutely enormous leap in in terms of our sort of digital um baseline of the organization there there's something around how we prepare so we are terribly transactional in the nhs you know it's difficult to be strategic certainly if you're not a sort of a high performing ft uh, uh, that's not really on the radar performance-wise. If you're anything, which is most of us are not, you know, if you are under a lot of scrutiny, it's very difficult to sort of step away from some of those day-to-day -day pressures and say, look, we've got a five-year, ten-year vision here, and we're 
slowly building towards it. But it does strike me that we probably do need to invest more time in building the, the sort of core competencies within the workforce so that each new digital project isn't doing a vast amount almost from scratch or doesn't feel like it. So you're loading far too much on the program. I'm still listening to the sort of daily Cerner calls, uh, often dealing with some very, very trivial sounding pieces of uh, preparation work, which really ought to be in place within the organization's culture. So there's something about, you know, we're very hot on mandatory training on issues to do with patient safety, rightly, but, you know, there, there probably is a whole lot of skills that we need to be much, much more focused on as organizations that would help these digital projects. That's one. Another area which it does bring to mind is that we do have a, a tendency. I know there's a cynicism about the benefits that digital, major digital projects will bring, but the reality is they will. I think if we compare what banking was like 20 years ago, 10 years ago, what it is now, uh, it's clearly going to have a profound effect on healthcare. So the, the the sort of usual tropes of, well, all these projects, they go vastly over budget, they don't bring us any benefits. I think it really does need to be challenged. And that we, perhaps within our own organizations, I'm still looking at a transformation program with north of 200 schemes on it, which for an organization, even with eight or 9,000 staff, is an awful lot of things to be keeping in the air at one time. I do think there's something about... Uh, having a bit more confidence in the benefits of some of these major projects and using that to say, actually to challenge the number of other activities we're expecting our teams to to do. So we really focus effort on some of these big transformational digital changes because they do need that. Otherwise, uh, as, as was said, it's, it's naive to assume they're going to happen in six months or nine months. And you're actually undermining the benefits case quite substantially if you try and do that. So, so that my sense is there's some lessons that we can be learning about background, uh, what we do in the background to help us be better prepared for these projects, help staff understand what they need, gives them the skills they need. And then the other side is be a little bit more robust internally about if this is the biggest transformation project, then really I don't want to be seeing another 100 transformation projects in a list. Thank you, Ralph. I think that's a valid point. Um, we've, we've just streamlined our... Um, our list of IT projects and programs. We're going through a big epic um, transformation at the moment. Um, our capital program is predominantly for the next couple of years um, infrastructure related, um, and and so a lot of the and that's very different from a, even just a year ago where we were the same. We had hundreds of of kind of you know clinically transform transformative um, projects and programs going around. Even with a, even with the threat of epic um, looming large, um, so it's it's definitely one of the things where I think streamlining those things happen. I, I'm curious around how you found because I I don't think we do it as an organisation, and I I wonder whether it's broader than just us, whether it's the NHS more generally around once a project or a program has completed, um, that how likely is it that that resources continue to be allowed to track and monitor the benefits for 6, 12, 18 months after you've completed it so that you can do that assessment of did we meet the benefits? You know, did we not? Why did we not get those lessons learned? I've, I seem to find that once we've gone live, everyone's focused on fixing the system to be the most optimal it can be clinically 
and operationally and the whole benefits realization piece just drifts away and no one takes ownership of it and you know the lessons learned is a, a one-stop shop kind of you know um, document that the project manager throws in before he leaves and moves on to his next um, project somewhere else and and I wonder whether that's something that that you've that's unique to us or whether actually uh, it's it's felt elsewhere thanks Dan do you have something to add to that Ralph certainly um the observation about benefits, assessing benefits realization, it, I, I completely agree. I've uh, I had about ten years working on various merger transactions, and uh, I think it's fair to say, and these these are all large, uh, multi-year, you know, multi-hundred million pound projects. And yes, actually, the, the benefits realization is 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 something on a project checklist, but I don't think it's it's really undertaken. Seriously, I think there's a balance to be struck, obviously, around um, we do have a potentially a tendency to sort of highly overanalyze uh, problems, which may well have moved on quite a bit. But that's not to say that we, we have anywhere near enough focus on on, on uh, really understanding at least the, what that we've achieved or not achieved, the, the principal benefits, or to some extent, I, I actually quite firmly believe a lot of the digital benefits probably will far outweigh anything that sits in a business case because generally these things are seen as too outlandish you know we've got to be relatively conservative within business cases and that sometimes is is again a bit of a risk and a, a difficulty a challenge i think for for people that when you're at that business case stage where actually you're, you're under so much pressure to uh, focus on in particular in year or first year benefits uh, and and there's almost an active, uh, almost actively discouraged to really uh, be realistic about the the, the uh, likely long term benefits that um, we've maybe got our focus a little bit wrong on that. But I agree with you that that it's not something that's seen as a huge priority. It's fair to say, of course, that we, particularly when you're looking at this as a, from a provider perspective, where there are immense short-term, a long list of short-term project problems that are constantly arising, not least of which is industrial action at the moment. So there, there are always reasons why you, you need to be investing your resources in something else. And that may be something where, particularly because there's some sort of thematic things on these big projects, you know, there are multiple organizations going through these exercises of, uh, of system upgrades, that maybe it is something for, for networks to do with us rather than having having too much uh, of, of an internal resource. Maybe also that, that gives you a little bit more, um, I'm not advocating third parties necessarily, but I do think there's something about working with peers. I've found the last sort of six months in our sector, there's been a considerable amount of peer review going on of services, of elective recovery, of emergency response. And I, I think generally it's fair to say that both from the, clinical side and, and from the managerial side, I think those have been seen to be incredibly valuable and informative. So there may be something in there that the benefits uh, realization and the assessment of those is something that will be well done by networks and, and alliances, um, but it certainly needs to be done. We need to be a little bit better at learning some of the lessons. Yeah, I, think I've, I think what I've found is Certainly where I've seen post-project benefits realization done well is 
uh, has largely been around where we've had external funding. So from somewhere like NHS England, where it's been mandated that we've had to for at least six months after we've gone live. Um, and so I think you're right. I think having, whether that's through um, some kind of peer review um, or whether or whether NHS England, certainly where it's, you know, multi-million pounds, you know, epic CERNA implementations, whether NHS England have a role to play to hold trusts accountable to make sure that they are doing that benefits realisation piece. I think there's there's certainly something valuable in it. Because as you say, well, internally as a, as an organisation, there's always there's always the next you know fire to be fought that that takes resources away um, from um, from undertaking the benefits realisation piece, which at the time um, feels like a checkbox exercise because we've already we we've done it and we've done the project. And what does it matter? Is the kind of you know, message that I get thrown at me all the time. Uh, so yeah. Third party, third party reviews will be a, a useful one. I think on the takeaway that I've got. Yeah, thanks, Ralph. Mohammed, over to you. I think uh, we often forget why we're doing that, why we're working on a program, what were the benefits, which were the key drivers for us to achieve things. And I think it's it, the, probably across the organisation less time spent on evaluating the benefits. Uh, we should be more spent on it because you will see more lessons learned from it and hopefully to avoid the same mistake happening again. Um, I think the other element, if it, if the project is delivered what it was set to deliver and with less of the problems and issues afterwards, um, people probably tend to um, leave it. But if there was a problematic <laughs> project's delivery, they'd probably be more analysing more carefully. <laughs> I think Ralph's point earlier on, we outstrip the initial benefits we set out to achieve, which is probably more. Um, and you might have come across, you set out to achieve and fix one thing, yet you had to change many other programs around you, put new practices in place, new processes in place, and making that positive change across other systems as well. So it clearly, it clearly uh, achieves the benefit, but how, how often do we review them? I think the, the other element which we're looking at is how how do we have a stable resource, or if not resource, how we have a stable uh, structure in place in terms of PMO or program office, which says, look, these are clearly the metrics uh, you agreed. This is what you were going to achieve. Uh, they don't need to be involved in the project. They don't need to understand as long as they have some availability and access to the people who are accountable or still accountable to deliver those programs or running the program, they can assess where the things are. I think I think the challenge comes is in terms of the data. Have, did we actually baseline the data correct uh, to measure the benefits? Because that's often the cha- challenge. We we do not believe in our own data and say no, we don't we don't believe what it said, but we know now this is the case. So we often miss the point. Are we actually improving? And if we improve, how much have we actually improved? We might exponentially improve, but we never really had the baseline established. That's another challenge uh, with uh, benefits, uh, mailing the benefits. I think I've got just one thing when you mentioned about the PMO on there. The, the challenge I found around the PMO conducting those kind of reviews is, um, is them being given the authority to do so. So they can they can have it written down to say that it's a job that you should be undertaking. But if the relatively senior clinical colleagues don't recognise the authority that you've got to ask those questions of them, you don't get 
the answers that you need. So it, it almost needs to be, we need to make sure that there's top-down support from the organization to say, actually, we have to um, be measuring the benefits of these business cases to make sure that we are delivering um, and um, and get the authority from, you know, from the top down so that when you go and knock on the door of a very busy clinician, um, you don't get, well, you either, you either get, I don't know who you are or why you're asking me these questions or you get, I'm too busy. One of the two, but it's it's never you know I can give you fifteen minutes next week, which which would be enough, quite frankly. So it, it can be a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I don't want to sort of prolong this first question, but but that might be another topic for you, Ellie, around organisational KPIs, objectives, setting. You know, if these are major projects, then most of us do have a set of strategic objectives and and it ought to have sort of percolated through the organization that that's the reason we're asking you because this is an indicator that we've all agreed is absolutely Mm -hmm. critical but that's that's a whole different conversation hold on yeah Yeah. hold on in itself we'll have to get you all back on Uh, Mohammed, did you have something to add? Oh, yeah, it's a very valid point. And actually go back to um, uh, Bruce Daniel's point earlier on. Did we put enough efforts and did we put the right resources, the right timelines when we actually established the business cases? Because that is, you know, where you would have defined the metrics for benefits, mayor, and who's account, who's responsible for it, who's accountable for all that. Um, the more investment we have on that stage, the more clarity and the better framework we can put in place to 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 monitor that i think um which requires a lot of effort to be honest to begin with when you have various other challenges i think it's well worth the effort put in put at that stage to then set up uh, no matter if i'm here or who is but it is it is uh you know clearly indicated how do we how do we go about and assess that for an organization um yeah so i, I think i think i would add to that but it's just um, it's just keeping the balance right and when we have plenty of pressures, as we discussed earlier. Thank you, Mohammed. Um, okay, let's move on to Dan's question. Um, so, Dan, you asked whose role or responsibility is it to drive the requirements for the tools we use for digital engagement and why? Yeah, so so my, my thinking around this, so this started around, because I've in every organisation I've been in, um, there is there has always been some degree of transformation around communications, whether that's upgrading your mobile phones, swapping out pages, it doesn't matter what it is. But there there never seems to be um, a coherent strategy anywhere that I can see or from any one part of the organization that says this is how the this is how we want to communicate within an organization and these are therefore and these are the best tools these are the te- technical tools that we want to use. So whether that's um, mobile phones, pages, bleep, you know, um, instant message, all sorts of, you know, weird and wonderful things, I suppose unified comms as it is in these, in this, you know, 21st century. Um, we, we've never quite got to it. So, so we're doing a telephony refresh program at the moment, and that's driven predominantly by IT because the old IT, the old phone system's going and we have to get onto voice over IP. So we're driving a a burning platform. You've got another part of the organization that is desperate to get rid of pages and bring in some app for the sake of an app for uh, emergency bleeping of staff. And we we just got this disparate, you know, 
desperate need to cling on to communication technologies across the organization. And I don't see any one part of the organization owning it strategically and giving us in IT somewhere that we can have a conversation that says, if I'm going to do a communications technology transformation program, this is what it's going to need to be for a 21st century trust. We got rid of faxes, that's fine. But they all seem to be little hodgepodges of communication technology kind of replacements as burning platforms go. And I wonder what everyone's take is on who should be driving the strategic position for the trust and how we communicate with each other and the tools that we should, could, would or should be using. Mohammed, over to you. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, I'll continue your pain. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think... You know, we, I, I just go back to the, uh, I was going to come into some of the discussion later on, some of the points I was going to touch on, is often uh, there are financial pressures of different things, which leads to actually evaluating where you are. Um, and it, in the past, some of the conversations, people are either in the favor of a, a strategy or some really don't like it because it's just written on a piece of paper is not really the reality. Um I think the age we're living in, we really need to be looking at it, um, where we have a strategy across an organization, um, which, which you know, gives us a sense of direction where we're going and how we're collectively going there. And, and that what needs to communicate, what the communication should look like and what the message is from the top and what is the engagement from the middle management and then is the engagement from the business and the business-led technology change. What we often do is we, we find the tool, we, we we come across, this is the best tool, this is the way to do it, and then we engage the business. So look, now we find something that, that is a tool, that's the best tool, a number of tools can work with us. Um, I think it needs to be all driven systematically because it's not just one change it's a lot of changes happening at the same time uh, so it needs to be a really consistent message across the organization and consistent approach across the organization our strategy kind of defines that or actually give you mechanisms to to highlight what the priority areas are and where the investment is needed in terms of the time and and the people as a resource um, and if you do get stuck at different stages, then you have the buy-in from the senior management that this is the reason why we agree we are delivering it. So I think it's 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 the it's the knowledge and the and the approach as an organization we all need to understand, not just the business people, not just the technology people. We're all in it together. I think and we often as a technology person myself, we do not communicate the way people probably understand things which make more meaning to them and it's more associated to them they can link with. So I think this is where it's important we have that full understanding what does it actually involve as a digital transformation, which involves integrated strategy and goals from the beginning and having the middle management involved, having the business-led change uh, uh, you know, initiatives prioritized. And why we're doing it, you know, is a compliance. Uh, there is a there is genuine need for the business to grow. You know, what are the desires and where does it align as a strategy for an organization? So I think that helps to some extent. But yes, we need to be having those discussions of what what does that alignment mean for us. Um, Thank you, Mohammed. Ralph, good to you. Well, 
for me, there's also a bit about sort of stepping back. What, one thing that I do think is very sort of characteristic of the NHS is that we do tend to, someone, someone I work for once sort of described it, is we, we're extremely disparaging about different people's opinions or expertise on anything. And um, the number of times uh, I've come across, let's say in this example, sort of, well, what's the best communications approach and infrastructure that we need? And it is driven by people who never in their lives would let a neurosurgeon deal with a dermatology problem or uh, a, uh, a plumber work on your uh, work on your car. For some reason, we really don't direct these sort of problems at the right expertise yeah and certainly when it's come to these sort of examples where you try and remind people that uh, when we get into discussions about well what's the best interface that we should be designing you think well people like apple devote tens of billions of dollars to this problem and have been for decades this is very complicated and it also needs expertise and actually we need to be quite prepared to to sort of step back and so for example if i want to know what my appeal to my patients perhaps i we should listen a bit more to our patient experience teams or to uh, some of our communications colleagues and so on so we do have a tendency to sort of jump in and uh, i've also had that sort of experience of oh, this is the great app let's use this you think why um it really doesn't fit with anything so there's so something about being much more um respectful of, of expertise that's out there um realizing that certainly when it comes to anything to do with communication it is pretty complicated and we really need to understand there's all sorts of different views of this and actually if we've learned anything in the last whatever it is decade of the sort of explosion of what's going on in social media is that actually there are going to be lots of channels that are going on um but we so it's it's challenging but i also do think there's a lot of there's a lot of good expertise out there, not necessarily sitting in the NHS. I think that's another challenge that we're going to have is if I want to design a UX, I'm not going to hire a team to do that in-house. There are people that do this for a living and we need to somehow, this also goes back to some of the business case challenges. We need to get over ourselves with the, well, that looks very expensive. You think, yes, it is. A, if it goes wrong and B, trying to set this up. And spending five years trying to recruit the right people, not recruiting them, and still having something that doesn't work, it isn't the solution. So there's a, it, it is difficult. I'm, I'm actually quite confident that these are things that are eminently tractable because it's going on all around us. There are, the way in which systems have evolved in in even the even the last couple of years is so spectacular that I, I do think again these are problems that. Hopefully, when we look back in five, ten years' time, we'll think, gosh, you know, we, we really made heavy weather of this. Um, obviously, there is a massive challenge for, for certainly our own digital services to try and interface with this. But again, some of that interoperability, I guess, will become easier in future. And then my sort of last thought is that, that another challenge, I think, for, for individuals like us, I think, to face is is how do you kind of face off some of the distractions. So we, we have got ourselves into an enormously fruitless debate about two-factor authentication. You know, it's seen as very tedious, irritating, can't we do away with it? The answer to that is simply no. Go along to your bank and tell them you don't like two-factor authentication. That's fine. Don't bank with us. 
you know, there's an element of being a little bit more pragmatic. Uh, so those are the two things. You know, one is we've got to be really focused, but we also have to appreciate or help our colleagues appreciate the expertise for some of these problems lies with others. We just have to respect the expertise of, of colleagues, and that applies to kind of all of us. And equally, if we're saying from a business perspective, that might seem very uh, desirable, but it really is not practical. You know, We're not saying no because we don't like your ideas. We're saying no because it really doesn't work for us at the moment. So that's a, it's a mixture of things there. Yeah, I think that's I think that's all all very true. One of the one of the telling things that happened to me a long long time ago now when I first joined the NHS um, and I was talking to uh, my CCIO and then some other clinical colleagues um, and we were we were trying to understand how to how to get our clinical engagement right around technology and one of the he's now the CCIO of Brompton um, said at the time he says I. I don't know what technology I need. I don't. I don't. I just. I just haven't got a clue. I can't. I can't tell you what I'm going to need in the future. But if you came to me with a camera, I'll give you 50 clinical uses for it. So I don't know what's out there technology-wise. You don't know what we need to. Do. So in order to get us together, we need to. We always need to sit in a room to turn around and say, actually, do you know what? Let's get. Let's get a load of clinical leaders. And operational leaders, not just clinically, but from you know finance, HR, estates, all of all around the trust. Get them all around the room and just show them what the are the possible is. And you know this is how Apple and Microsoft and all these other you know companies are doing communications across their companies. This is why they're using. This is when they're using instant messaging. This is when they're using you know um, email, which has probably largely died a death apart from in the NHS these days. But you know we. We seem to be a generate just one generation behind. So we were using fax when everyone else had stopped using it. We just got rid of fax and we shifted everything's onto email and no one's using email anymore. Everyone's on instant message and well, we can't use instant message. So we're just we just seem to be slightly behind the curve. And I wonder whether there's something around the colleagues that we've got don't can't tell us what they want to do or how they want to use it because they don't know what's there. They don't know what these, you know, um fantastically gifted people in the world of technology can offer us and until we can bring it to them and say here's a plethora of communication technologies what do you think is going to be best for you going forward um you know is there a use for not necessarily whatsapp but that kind of technology in triaging patients where they can you know you can you know a first responder can fire an email and you know take a picture and you know ping it off to someone and you know if we if we give them an opportunity to see the tools in action, it will get them thinking about how does that work in my patient workflow? Well, actually, I could see how I could do A, B, and C with that. And actually, that wouldn't work for me for that reason. And we'd suddenly start getting to a point where um, we'd have this, I suppose, this strategic plan, if you like, of what technologies work best in what scenarios. Um, and they've been thought through in that context. I just don't, at the moment, I don't see that we've, we've done anything like that for communication pieces and um it's it's striking me as things like even now where we're sat on teams like this you know my team you know my my pmo we use teams all the time so we've got teams set up we've got channels set up for all of our board meetings and we share our documents on there so we're not firing emails around but i know other parts of the organization who are still sending attachments and emails and you know doing it very differently there isn't anyone in the organization 
that's taking teams, for as an example, and saying, this is how we in, an, in this organization are going to use teams and, and how it works in all the different organizations. And this, and this is where we're definitely not because it's not suitable. Um, I don't see anyone owning that. And I don't know whether, I don't know who or where in the organization that responsibility lies. I just, I, I can't quite pin it down in my, my full process. I mean, certainly to the, the point um, that Mohammed made around uh, having, it does, it does sort of say, yes, of course, we do need some strategy at least to the extent, it doesn't need to be hundreds of pages long, but at least to the extent of setting a broad framework. Um, and given that we're talking about communications in the digital age, it's probably not even, even, even the idea of a three-year strategy that's probably going to miss all sorts of developments that pop out of the woodwork. But but having having a general vision of what we're trying to achieve um, for the things that we're sort of that we know are out there, and the, given that we're sort of always a little bit behind the times, even if we just said, right, these are the broad channels that are out there. Um, how do we see these being deployed? Which ones can we deploy? Which ones maybe can't we? And then it probably does also need some pretty firm principles because uh, with the best will in the world, we are going to have to make some decisions about, well, we can't have 200 different kinds of messaging app flying around in the organization because it, it, we're then going straight back into the, the sort of legacy challenges that all of us have had when we've tried to integrate our systems in the first place. So that there's something about it will need a level of control whilst at the same time recognizing at least kind of what's what's out there and what works well in different contexts but um even that piece of work um certainly from our own perspective you know it's one of the things i've written down here is it's absolutely worth doing because it also then needs to influence very much the scope of a lot of the transformational digitally enabled transformation work we're going to be doing over the next well forever really so there's definitely a takeaway there about you know we we should spell this out but probably refresh it every 12 months because things are changing so quickly and we might also be overtaken by our own staff because if suddenly everyone starts using a particular way of working we really are going to need to, to follow that to some extent yeah thanks um yeah i think really debated points um well from daniel um I think we, we as an organization, um, we'll be going through a strategic review. We've been going through the last years or so. And in the last six months or so, we really looking seriously into a, a direction, which direction we're traveling. And we're reviewing our business uh, and we are putting strategies in place. So as not, not just as one department writing up their own strategy, but as an organization, we're reviewing the whole organization as a strategic viewpoint and then individual constitution what does our digital strategy look like you know it, it could set the vision for the next five years or three years but realistically uh what we're trying to achieve and what we're trying to achieve in the next two to three years what does our program look like and how does that line to the overall goal of the organization so i think it's really helpful having organization together having the similar conversations all talking and reviewing and some sense of coming together and planning together. I think that's what's happening. I think we really need to have those discussions, especially 
when you have a huge transformation program to deliver, um, external compliance to achieve, I think we're really finding it helpful. But we just need to be realistic in terms of what it is we're going to achieve for the next 12 months. Is it two years? We can't have a strategic vision. We can have a vision, but we can't have the program for the next five years because so many things would have changed. Technology would have changed in between. I think that has really helped me evaluate what we're doing as a as a function and how the business is going to engage with us. And 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 for once they actually have a visibility of they have the opportunity to actually contribute to it as well. So went around across the organization for what does it mean to have a digital strategy? What do they think should be in the digital strategy? And what as a program it looks like. Uh, so there is some visibility of that. Uh, but I think the other thing is we need to put the right structures in place to to achieve and deliver the transformation is 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 the vision that's been set to the strategy level or the senior management level? Do we have the alignment as the business change function or the leaders of the business change function? And and again, do we have the right people in the right places? We often come across, you know, we don't have the right skill set. Uh, you know, they might be really good at something else, but not the right skill set for that role. And for all goodwill, the thing they can deliver, and we think we can deliver, but we often do not have the skill set. You know, Ralph's point, we do need to look external, outward facing, you know, suppliers, we should be thinking them as our partners. How can help us in, in the situation? We cannot have every single, you know, technology experts in the NHS. We need to call upon the external resources. And I think the other thing is, you know, we often have large scale programs and projects. What it is the agile methodology or approach can do for us for the short term, or can we change? I think that's certainly what I'm trying to look at and trying to put the structure, trying to understand what components, what elements would help deliver that successful transformation and try to revise myself, try to remind myself, so like, this is what it is and take the others along the same journey. We often forget, you know, why we're we doing and what is the right approach to do it. So it's, it's, it's I think the building that skill set for digital transformation across the organization is not just IT's role, it's, it's the business change leader's role, as well as the senior management role, um, to collectively drive and, you know, deliver that digital transformation. So it's, it's the framework, how often do we use, you know, we, we, we have long, uh, length of programs and projects, but yet we're not following a structured methodology. We're, we're probably using Prince2 and all that, but that goes some way, but there's many factors outside it. How do we how do we all commit to it? How do we all to follow to some extent, you know, to achieve those benefits what we set out to achieve? Thank you, Mohammed. So final question then was from you, Mohammed. Um, so what are the critical elements to deliver a successful digital transformation? Right. So uh, these these are the things I've just mentioned. So I think it's, it's the, we need as an organization or, or, or NHS as a whole, as an organization, big organization, what our strategic vision is. Um, and that vision that we, we set out to achieve is integrated in our approach. We have a clear goals of what we're trying to organize, achieve as an organization. And that is visible to you know everyone. Why why are we doing it? And we do need we do need a commitment from leadership through to the middle management. You know, is often the case the the management set out this is the direction we, we we're traveling in, but we don't gauge the the middle management or or the people who are on the ground delivering those changes. Do they have the buy-in to the same 
same message or same vision. So it's, it's important, kind of a cyclic approach. We don't need to get them involved to drive that vision, to drive that program, what we're going to achieve. So that's really important. We have the leadership engagement through all levels, not just the senior management. You know, There's a leadership needed at each level, at the team level, individual in, at an individual level, whichever level they're working from. Uh, and we do need to have their motivation, keep them involved, giving them the clear vision why why we're we doing it. That's often give the people just to be involved um, and not lose the purpose what, what we set out to. I think in terms of the best people in the right place, um, it's really important. That does mean we need to build that capacity for once and the right capabilities, you know, there are new technologies out there we need to benefit from them. So we do need to invest, build that skill set workforce uh, across the organization. You know, who are well-versed, who are accustomed to the changes, who who know what they're doing. So they need to be part of that framework uh, when they are delivering changes. Um, and I mentioned the over approach to deliver, you know, do we have to really look at uh, the long-term plan? Can we do uh, adopt uh, agile methodology can we can we have early benefits can we uh, can we change our approach you know we often um, have a long programs but within that we can probably benefit still short-term goals and because there are a lot of moving parts not just one project as many going on at the same time you know one is dependent on another one which is um, least um, people would want but in reality that is the case which which slows down the change so we just need to be mindful of that, you know, have a right mix of methodology to to deliver the change um, and the behaviors that goes with it. You know, we, we need to exhibit same behaviors as a leadership, you know, I'm willing to change. I think we earlier discussed a um, topic on Microsoft Teams, you know, some people using Teams, but the others are not. Uh, it's really hard to communicate to the management and if they're not on the Teams, they still want, um, you know, a different approach to communicate. You know, it creates extra burden on people. And, you know, we've got a technology which has been wasted. You know? So we need to be really consistent in our approach as an organization. What is the optimal way of working and why we are working that way? Because there's a lot of efficiencies to be actually have in, 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 in those areas. And um, we're going through the same conversation at our organization. So it's very close to me what's happening at, at this stage. So um, I think the other thing we mentioned is monitoring uh, monitoring is probably not the right word. I think it's probably uh, measuring so we can learn from it early enough to put the right corrective measures in place uh, and and bold enough to accept why we're not doing it and then really reviewing, do we need to do something different? Um, and I think the last point probably is only, it needs to be business-led change. We often have a change as a technology person delivering. It's not, it should be business-led technology adoption and utilization of the data that is available to us and build the data structure. Um, but we often change systems. All we don't need is access to the right information to to achieve what we set out to achieve. So it's a lot of there's a lot of elements which we I think we need to as an organization need to understand what are the critical elements. How do we how do we follow through that? And that for some sort of a framework for organization which we've set up, we want to achieve this is where we are. This is where we stop and be up and honest and upfront at all levels. Sorry, the engine in here, but yeah. <laughs> uh, Ralph, what are your thoughts? I mean, there, 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 there's a lot sort of in there, and, and while you were speaking, it kind of reminds me of, of 
numerous challenges, I guess, over the years of, of uh, 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 across different types of project work. One thing that is is always hard, I think, is and has always surprised me. It's the at one level, we of course are in an environment where we are we need to deploy what we do. So this is the organisation as a whole, incredibly flexibly. So we we can't be sort of super rigid because otherwise, you know, how would we have responded to the pandemic? How would we respond in an emergency setting? I understand that we need flexibility, yet it always it, or it never ceases to amaze me how little kind of discipline we seem to be able to enforce on our organizations even of the basics of of sticking to whatever guidance whatever project it is we've decided to follow no, no sooner have you started work on that then you find that someone's gone off and still gone and procured some system that you weren't aware of yeah. so you know the, the irony the, the the unfortunate truth is especially when you're dealing with really large really complex projects is you do require a level of discipline that is sometimes a sort of bit of an anathema in the NHS, that we do like to be this sort of freewheeling, uh, independent uh, uh, sort of teams and practitioners. So there's something about how you get discipline into a into an organisation from, from that sort of perspective of how do we do things. And that will go right back to even the things around the benefits realisation. If that is part and parcel of the way in which projects are delivered, then it just needs to be done, needs to be understood why it's important and why people do it. So it, it's a, it certainly comes with having really good systems in place within an organization, really well-established, well-used, not constantly being tinkered with so that people can really get to understand how how an organization works and what they need to do. And and again, we're, that's a lot of quite tedious housekeeping that many people don't enjoy doing. So there's something about we don't do enough of that, probably. Um, I, I, I'm also struck that even when we bring in things where the benefits case is clearly about streamlining, we do appear to often make life more complicated and more time-consuming than it was beforehand. And given that the, the, I've yet to come across any aspect of what we do where the demand's going down, yeah, it. it Clearly, we are able to do vastly more than we've ever done with the same amount of resource. So there's no question that we are improving, despite what people might be saying. The productivity is 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 improved in terms of what we do, how much we do. But nevertheless, there's a real challenge to implementing change that really strips out um, unnecessary time and frees it up for other things. Back to some of the points that have been made right at the beginning around, well, we don't give the key people, including the clinicians that are meant to lead and implement all of this, uh, the, the headspace to properly devote time to these projects we, we need their engagement and leadership on. And then I guess the last one comes back to some of the points, again, that Mohammed's made around strategy. Yeah, again, the strategy for most NHS organizations is pretty straightforward in terms of what we do. We're not about to go and change into the banking sector or decide to go and set up uh, you know, on a, in a different continent. So we're very clear by and large of what our purpose is. However, there's still the sort of clarity within an organization of, right, these are our absolute top strategic priorities. Everything comes back to those. 
And often just looking at those can very quickly tell you whether some project, that some idea that, that's suddenly popped up in another part of the organization is or is not aligned to those priorities. And yet we do often pursue things with far too much resource that are self-evidently not what we should be doing. So that, and that comes back to the sort of organizational discipline and people making a connection between, well, if this is what you set as your priorities, then, then you really do need to implement them. Obviously not utterly inflexibly, and you do need to revisit them to make sure they're still correct. But, you know, don't deviate from them the minute that they've actually been signed off by the board and that uh, you've done some enormous communication exercise. So it is a little bit around um, bringing everyone repeatedly back to these are the priorities, these are the way we do things here, this is why we do them. But I think to get people to support that kind of approach, of course, they need to feel tangibly that their lives are being made easier, you know, more effective, which again, I think we, we can do. We're probably back to we under we underplay some of the benefits of, of the work that the projects, the big systems that have been implemented over the years. You know, they really have made pretty profound differences to people in terms of uh, Amanda Pritchard was making a few examples of well, you know, we don't have TB worlds anymore. We mobilize people. Well, we've got uh, orthopedic patients who are mobilized within hours. It, this is a fundamental difference. A lot of that was enabled by technology as much as anything else. You know, so th there's a bit about a combination of things, more discipline, real clarity about why we're doing things, uh, uh, being very, very insistent that if the benefit doesn't make this profoundly easier for our colleagues, uh, we probably need to rethink them before we launch into some big project. But having said all of that, I, I actually think there are enough examples that, that we absolutely are able to do this. Thank you, Ralph. Dan, over to you. Uh, so I think the I think the, the point about strategy is a is a valid one. One of the challenges that I found certainly certainly when I was at Brompton, when I was co-authoring the strategy with our CIO at the time, uh, was was around uh, particularly on the technology side. Technology strategy up until that point had been relatively independent of anything else that was going on in the organisation. We were just we were this you know IT basically told the board. This is, this is the technology that we need to invest in over the next couple of years. And we got given a fraction of what we got asked for because they never saw any of the relative, uh, you, know, you know, there was no link between, well, we don't see any benefit. So you're not having that, but you can have that. Until we got to a point where actually we, ha we brought in a CIO who um, was a qualified doctor and then went into IT um, consult, uh, consultation work and then came in as a CIO. So it was, you know, understood very well what was needed clinically and actually um, drove a very big um, uh, piece of work to make sure that we had a well-defined clinically clinical strategy that had been signed off that we could that we could then sit and um, hang our technology strategy off of and so we had not only did we have a technology strategy but we had a strategic roadmap of the programs and projects that we needed to deliver that were tangibly linked back to the technology the, um, the clinical strategy of the organization um, it's the first time I've really seen something like that in the NHS where the technology strategy was written purely to underpin the clinical strategy that had already been signed off by the organization and that was that was um, 
something that I think NHS needs to get more and more into doing, making sure that we are supporting the clinical strategy rather than investing in technology because someone shouted loud about something that they wanted, which seems to be where we are or have been um, in other things. Um, but in terms of going back to you know what what makes um, what makes transformational change um, a success, I would say for me probably three things. One one is are we addressing a genuine business problem? Um, so so what's the what's the business problem that we are solving by this, or are we putting in technology for technology's sake? Because if you're doing the latter, you're, there are no real benefits that you're going to be driving. So people aren't going to be invested in it because they're not going to see any um, improvement to their way of life or in terms of, you know, no no efficiencies for them in how they're operating. The second is around who owns the um, who owns the transformation. And, and I think Mohammed was saying it needs to be clinically owned. And, and I agree completely. It can't be owned by the IT department. It needs to be driven by the business. Um, one of the one of the catch-alls, I, there was a there was a throwaway comment that someone, one of my CIOs made when I was in the foreign office um, for projects, which was, um, we're very good at uh, our projects being a technology success, but an operational failure. And I think that is fundamentally true of a large number of technology programs and projects we do. We get the kit in, works. We may as well have just put in a vanilla system and thrown a manual at the staff for all the engagement that we did. Um, and I think that's still with a lot of systems happens today. We don't really engage the staff well enough, um, which brings me on to third and probably most important. And I still see it not being done and given enough um, uh, time and resource um, is a is a well um, a well versed communication strategy and communications plan for some of these really big transformation programs um, and it being resourced well enough and that's not just sending emails out and messages but it's you know branding it getting you know doing uh, you know events and um, just getting staff engaged and enthused and having digital champions going around the place you know you know getting some sense of excitement around you know this you know for, for what is going to be with Epic and Server certainly is going to be once in a lifetime, you know, a generational shift in technology, um, I'm, I'm fairly sure. And if we don't um, leverage our communications colleagues and the communications tools that we've got um, to best effect, you know, we'll, um, we'll go live with a whimper, not a bang. And it's, um, it's, not, a, it's not a great way to cut. Thank you, Dan. Has anyone got anything else to add before we finish? It's sort of the thought what was the comment was just made, and and I, I can see that there's a real there's there's quite a risk that particularly with some of these big projects, uh, the communications becomes about almost the, the 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 sort of damage limitation. It's going to be incredibly disruptive. It's going to be you know uh, as opposed to constantly reminding people uh, we are going to be in a completely different planet when this is in in terms of what we can do and the position we're going to be in. It will just utterly revolutionize the opportunities. So so I, I know that doesn't there's there's nothing there's no sense of, of being um, ignoring the sort of challenges that the implementation brings. But actually it's it's quite it's a really good point that we we've actually sort of drifted well away from the the this is 
pretty much the most exciting thing that's going to happen to most of the people for the rest of their careers, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it feels like we've got to a point where our communications around these transformation projects are almost apologetic in their tone around, we're really sorry that we have to do this to you. We know it's going to be really painful rather than actually you know, driving some excitement and enthusiasm for the, you know, the really, really positive um, change that it's going to make to the way that they deliver care to their patients. I guess if we can achieve the equivalent of people sleeping outside the Apple store waiting for the next phone, then we'll know we've got there. Yeah, when we've got when we've got nurses lining, yeah, sleeping to get uh, training for their uh, Epic implementation or their Cerner implementation, you know you've done something right. I don't think it's going to happen, but you know we can we can we can live and dream, can't we? I, I think it's. <laughs> I think, I think it's really. Um, I don't know, make or break is probably the right word. But having the engagement earlier on, and and the business and the clinical leaders, you know, it makes life so much easier. Um, I was in leading the EPR change program that was six seven years ago, where we moved from paper to digital. And we had that level of engagement and people were involved, they were really committed to participate with us rather than just thinking, you know, we're moving to a digital system and, you know, digitizing papers into this. We were addressing the problems they were having with the paper approach and their processes. And we were trying to resolve those problems and building the system function in the EPR. And it was only because they were really involved and engaged with us. And, you know, they said, this is a problem. And we said, this is a possible solution. And we agreed with it. And that is only possible if they have the right engagement. And so I think it, it goes all the way as an engagement. How do we have the buy-in? You know, how the communication will be. I, I, in my view, it will be less of a challenge because they will be the one communicating their own team. So that this is what's happening. This is actually the reality. And these are the challenges. Uh, and, you know, where do they need their involvement? And hopefully the communications would be, we achieved this rather than can we have you talking to us sort of scenario. So I think it's really the case of having them onboarded earlier on and, you know, you're going through the journey together. That's, that's make it more interesting and, and, you know, get the job uh, well done towards the end of it and you achieve what you set out to achieve rather than um, delaying and costing more to the program, which we do not have the leisure of the cost all the time in the NHS. Thank you, Mohammed. Fabulous. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out of your evening um, to contribute to the series. Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thanks so much to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I am Ellie Fox and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at ellie.fox at evolution-contract.co.uk. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.